I thought long and hard about how to do a good job of introducing this chapter this morning about what kind of question or illustration or story or exhortation would pique your interest and kind of set the stage for this this passage. All of my great introductions ended up in my outtakes because none of them did justice to this passage. I have been really eager to get to this portion of the book of Zechariah ever since we started it quite a number of weeks ago. I can say without any fear of exaggeration that this is one of the most astounding passages in the whole Bible. Zechariah 12 is about two mighty and miraculous works of deliverance, of salvation, that God promises He is going to bring about toward His covenant people. The first is a deliverance of essentially the same kind that Israel and Judah had experienced many times. Except this one is ratcheted way up in scope and in intensity compared with all of those others. The second is a deliverance deliverance that's very different than anything that Israel as a nation has experienced in all of their nearly 3,500 years of existence as a people. It is the one deliverance that makes the difference between eternal life and eternal death. Now, if you're one of those who already knows that you have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, this passage is not old hat to you. This passage will add a vividness and a richness to that confidence that you have in Christ that few other passages will. And if you don't know that you have eternal life, this will be the most important thing that you will ever hear. I'm not saying this is the only place you'll ever hear it. I'm not saying that it's not available to you from other people and from other places, especially this one right here. I'm just stating a simple fact that this is the most important thing you will ever hear or know. Whichever of those categories you fit into, whether you know you have eternal life or whether you're not sure or you don't know at all, if you're one of those people who And please listen up for a minute. If you're one of those people who tends to have trouble focusing when someone else is doing all the talking, if you're one of those who tends to come to this meeting and be easily distracted by the person next to you who is busily texting or looking at Facebook or playing Candy Crush Saga, I encourage you to come right down here and sit in one of these forbidden seats at the front. And I can promise you they're exceptionally clean and germ-free because they are mostly untouched by human hands. <laughs> Don't worry about being embarrassed to walk down here while I'm still talking. Everyone will know it's my fault, not yours. I may not get any takers, but I'm serious. I am, I am beseeching you to be all ears this morning because this passage is powerful. I'm not talking about anything special in me. I'm saying that this passage is a passage that draws the distinction between life and death. The first verse of chapter 12 introduces the final prophetic word, the final oracle from God in the book of Zechariah, which extends from chapter 12 all the way to the end in chapter 14. It starts with a very simple preface that establishes a couple of key facts. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So the first thing it tells us is that this is the Word of God. It doesn't come from men, it comes from God. The second thing 
is that it is concerning Israel. Now that's an interesting statement because that's the last time that the word Israel occurs in this book. It doesn't show up in the, in the three chapters that it says that are introduced by a statement that this is concerning Israel. And that's interesting because, again, Israel had been carried away into captivity by Assyria, the northern tribes, and they hadn't been seen for a very long time. And yet God is going to spend the next three chapters talking about Jerusalem and Judah, and He introduces it by saying it's concerning Israel. Well, I think right up front that tells us that this is tied to His magnificent promise that we've seen already in this book many times, that He's going to reunite the people of Israel and Judah and make them one. And that one He calls Israel. All right. The second half of verse 1 is as significant as the first. Every word of this great prophecy comes directly from Yahweh who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. See, God is sovereign not only over His material creation, the heavens and the earth. He is sovereign over the spirit of man, that which gives life to man. That's going to prove to be critically important when we get to the second deliverance in this passage. Verses 2-9, through nine, we find the first promise regarding a, a mighty work of deliverance by the hand of Yahweh. What is it? Well, the first one is God's deliverance of His people from every mortal enemy. Verses 2-9 through nine describe an unprecedented siege, something that the world has never seen before. It says all the nations of the earth will come up against Judah and Jerusalem. All of them. Israel won't have any allies. Just enemies. And they will come up against Judah and Jerusalem to utterly wipe them out. I believe they will do so under the tyrannical leadership of one very powerful king who will have unprecedented power to deceive and to control men and nations. And I believe that man is spoken of in Revelation 13 as the beast. And I think he's the same guy that's talked about in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, and Revelation 19. There are two things that God declares He's going to do. And by the way, I should say, whatever you believe about that, about who that guy is, or about how these things exactly play out, that's not going to determine what you do with this passage. There are two things God declares He's going to do when this siege takes place. And these two things are very closely related to each other. The first is He's going to miraculously use Jerusalem and Judah to destroy all those nations that are coming up in this siege. And the second is He's going to miraculously save Judah and Jerusalem from this incredible attack. He's going to use them and He's going to save them. Verses 2-6 through six present what I call God's shock and awe. God promises that He's going to use Jerusalem and Judah as His instruments, His weapons to decisively execute His judgment against all the pagan nations that come up against His people. He uses four images to make this declaration very vivid. Two of them are about what He's going to do with Jerusalem and two are about what He's going to do with Judah, which would be the outlying region. J Jerusalem is the city, the capital. And Judah is the entire region of South Palestine that, in which the Judahites had, had dwelled before the exiles and now had, uh, to which they had returned. He says, 
Verse 2, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around, and I'm going to make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. Then he says, I'll make the clans of Judah a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. We'll get to all of those, but first this image of the cup of reeling. That's a great word picture. Cup of reeling is speaking about a big goblet of wine that you hand to somebody, and if they drink all of it, they are falling down drunk. Maybe you refill it a few times. Let me ask you this. If you were falling down drunk, how would how hard would it be for someone to take your wallet or your purse or to kill you? See, the point of this image is that the cup of reeling makes the person who drinks it completely vulnerable to whatever harm anyone wants to do to them. In Isaiah 51, God said to Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, says your Lord, Yahweh, even your God who contends for his people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. You've even made your back like the ground and like the street for those who walk over it. See, Many times by the hand of God, Israel and Judah had been reduced to such utter vulnerability that their enemies were able to do with them whatever they wanted. To take their land. To take them away into captivity. To trample them into the ground. But now, God says He's going to make Jerusalem a cup of reeling to bring down the nations that come up against them. In verse 3, God compares Jerusalem to a heavy stone for all the peoples. And He says all who lift it will be severely injured. This is what you call a fatal hernia. Verses 4-6 through six zoom out from the city of Jerusalem to the outlying clans of Judah. And they say, God says that He will use Judah as His weapon of warfare and it will be a very one-sided battle. He says, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. See, what you have here is the biggest invading force in the history of the world. And it's a cavalry. And every single horse is blind and bewildered and every rider is turned to craziness. You think that might affect the effectiveness <laughs> of this cavalry? In verse 6, God pictures the outlying clans of Judah as a fire pot and a flaming torch causing a wildfire that will spread throughout these invading armies so that they are consumed like pieces of wood and like bundles of grain. While this fire is torching the invading armies, the inhabitants of Jerusalem will continue to dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. In other words, those inside the city walls will be unfazed by what's going on outside. According to uh, verse 5, even while Jerusalem is essentially un untouched by the battle that's raging outside the walls, the Judahites who are in the thick middle of the battle won't resent that. In fact, they will say the inhabitants of, Ju of Jerusalem are a strong support to us through Yahweh of hosts, their God. That's the way it should always be, by the way, with God's people when they're fighting His battles. doesn't matter who's on the front lines, who's on the back lines, they should be in the battle together 100%. 
even though Judah and Jerusalem will be powerfully used by God to defeat this monster of an army, it's very clear throughout this passage who's actually making all this happen. It is not by Jerusalem's or Judah's might that their enemies will be vanquished. Look at the declarations in these verses. God says, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples. I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. I will strike every horse with bewilderment. I will strike the horses of the peoples with blindness. I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot and on and on. See, God's people will be his instruments, just like always. God is always and only the source of every deliverance. He alone is our refuge and strength. We've seen that theme developed over and over in this book, so I won't try to expand on it or develop it here. Now, while God is using Judah and Jerusalem to judge the nations, He will at the same time miraculously protect His people from this mother of all sieges. He says, I will watch over the house of Judah. So He's using them and He's protecting them. It would be easy to conclude from what we see here that His people will be mere spectators. They'll just kind of stand by and watch God do His thing. But that would be an inaccurate assessment of what's going on. Back in Zechariah chapter 9, the Lord of armies said, I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill that bow with Ephraim. I will make you like a warrior's sword. When God does battle, even now, He uses His people as His agents, His instruments to accomplish His will. The fact that both the progress and the outcome of those battles is entirely in the hands of God does not make us spectators. It makes us agents. It makes us useful, purposeful agents of God. In verses 7 and 8, God declares that this deliverance that He's going to bring about will observe no distinction between people. And this is a fascinating statement in 7 and 8. It says, Yahweh also will save the tents of Judah first in order that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be magnified above Judah. What's, what's going on there? Well, the house of David was the kingly line that descended from David. And the city of Jerusalem was the seat of power of that, of that kingship. Forty times in the Old Testament, Jerusalem, forty times, Jerusalem is called the city of David. In Deuteronomy 17, hundreds of years before Israel ever had a king, a human king, God gave them His instructions for how a king over them must behave. He told them that their king must not surround himself with all the things that kings typically surround themselves with, right? Military might, wealth, prestige, even wives that were married to form alliances with other countries to build up the king's power. Instead, there was one thing, just one, that a king over God's people was required to do. He was told to write for himself God's law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests and to keep it with him and read it all the days of his life. That was God's job description for the king. And 
right after that assignment, there's a purpose clause that explains the reason for the assignment. And one of the three key reasons that that the king was supposed to do it this way is so that his heart would not be lifted up above his countrymen. Here in Zechariah, almost a thousand years after those words were written in Deuteronomy, God says that when He sets out to save His people from the siege to end all sieges, He will not start with the city of Jerusalem. He will start with the tents of Judah, of the outliers. And He says He will do so in order that the glory of the house of David and of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. See, when God delivers, He makes no distinction between the royal and the common, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the feeble. The God who is no respecter of persons will bring the same deliverance to all those whom He delivers. Every last one of them. And that declaration becomes even more powerful when we look at what He says in the next verse. Verse 8. He says, when these events unfold, The one who is feeble will be like David and the house of David will be like God. Like the angel of Yahweh before them. When God says the one who is feeble will be like David, I don't think He just means that that the the weak guy is going to all of a sudden be strong and powerful and courageous and he's going to go fight like David did, right? I believe He is talking about a parody. An equivalence It's in some sense, in the eyes of God, between the common man in Judah and the man born into the kingly line of David in Jerusalem. But the promise doesn't stop there. It says, and the house of David will be like God. Like the angel of Yahweh. The first thing to note in that is that God and the angel of Yahweh are equated. The one who's called the angel of Yahweh was the primary character in several of the visions that we saw in the first six chapters of Zechariah. It's important to recognize that the word angel means messenger. That The word angelos, the Greek word angel, means messenger. It doesn't mean angelic being. It can apply to angelic beings. It can also apply to other kinds of messengers. Others who speak and act on behalf of God. Now, I'm not going to go into all the evidence. I'll have it in the footnotes of this manuscript. If you want it, go talk to Belen. (laughs) But I will say this. The Old Testament is filled with the evidence that the one called the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh and that He is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, before He came in the flesh. In John chapter 1, Verse 18, it says, No man has beheld God at any time. The only begotten God has revealed Him. has exegeted Him. So I believe that every single time in the Old Testament that a man has a face-to-face encounter with God and talks with Him and sees Him, the one he's talking to is the second person of the Trinity. And most of the time, when that's the case, that person is called the angel of Yahweh. And many, many times... In the same context, the angel of Yahweh is used interchangeably with Yahweh. Okay, and you can look at the references I put in the notes. So, Zechariah 12.8 should have gotten the attention of Zechariah's audience big time. The house of David will be like God, like the angel of Yahweh before them. This is one of the many times I believe the prophets use a simile. They say like or as when what they're really talking about is an equation. 
Let me explain what I mean. Not only will the kingly house of David be like God, like the angel of Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh will be the king over the house of God. And the angel of Yahweh is Jesus. Did Zechariah's audience understand all of that? Did they understand that the promised Messiah, the promised King who will reign forever on the throne of David in perfect righteousness and justice would be God in the flesh? Probably not. (laughs) But did they have some really, really strong clues that that was the case? Yeah. And when Jesus actually was standing before them, they had all kinds of evidence to know that this was talking about Him. And when He died on the cross, when they pierced Him on the cross, they had all kinds of evidence to know that this was talking about Him. There's still one more little point in verses 7 and 8 that I don't want to miss. And it's kind of in the same vein. God says the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem won't be magnified above Judah. Every Judahite will have the same status in the eyes of God as the one who's part of the household of David. And the household of David will be like God like the angel of Yahweh. The humblest people in Judah will be like David and the house of David will be like God. See, I think God's declaring there will be a parity, some kind of equivalence between the rank and file people in Judah and the angel of Yahweh. How could that possibly work? In Romans 8, Paul says all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's what Jesus called His Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and what? Fellow heirs with Jesus Christ if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So how, are, how is there an equivalence between the redeemed people of God and the, and, and the Messiah? We're His fellow heirs. We get plugged into His inheritance. We are adopted as sons with Him. But you know what? We're made sons not alongside Him, not in addition to Him. We are made sons in Him. It is His sonship. It is His position before God that gives us our position before God. In Him. This is amazing stuff for Old Testament, don't you think? The passage we're looking at isn't just talking about a military victory for Judah. It's talking about something far, far greater. It's talking about God making every last one of His people, even the least among His people, royalty in His sight. Not alongside Christ. Not in addition to Christ. In Christ. Verse 9 wraps up this first major section of chapter 12 and it summarizes all those preceding verses in one simple statement. It says, It will come about in that day that I, Yahweh, will set about to destroy all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. What happens when God sets about to do something? It happens. Okay? Now, Starting with verse 10, if I've lost you before this, please try to, to kind of get tuned in here. Starting with verse 10, there is a very dramatic change of focus in this chapter. 
God is still the one speaking. He's still talking to the same audience. But he abruptly stops talking about this mother of all sieges. He stops talking about delivering his people from their mortal enemies. He speaks of another very different and even more miraculous work of salvation. A far greater deliverance than any that God had ever brought about for Israel and Judah. One that will never have to be repeated when it happens. See, during Israel's long history, there had been many episodes of God very painfully judging them, right? Because of their stubborn and rebellious hearts. They had hearts like ours. <laughs> Imagine that. But along with those times of judgment, there have been many, many great deliverances by the hand of God. He has saved His people from all kinds of threats, from powerful, fearsome nations, from famines. Those mighty deliverances had repeatedly demonstrated God's faithfulness to His covenant promises. They had proven God's forbearance and compassion and grace toward His people while His judgments against them proved His justice and His holiness. But there was something that none of those mighty and miraculous deliverances had ever accomplished for Israel and Judah. They had not turned the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into a repentant, God-fearing people. If you don't believe that, read Psalm 106 and Nehemiah 9. They, they reiterate the history of Israel and they go from judgment to deliverance to judgment to deliverance to judgment to deliverance. And every single time there's deliverance, Israel lapses back into disobedience. You know what we should learn from that? Very important, simple principle. Situational deliverance does not produce spiritual deliverance. Situational deliverance does not produce spiritual deliverance. Getting out of a really difficult mess getting out of a bad relationship and into a good one, getting out of a crummy job into a good one where you can work with people that you like, getting out of your bad habits into good ones, none of those very desirable changes will ever change your heart. And that's why we go so quickly from being elated over one deliverance to crying out for the next one. But here's what will actually change your heart. Here's the only thing that will actually change your heart. That will change you from the inside out. Zechariah 12.10, God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Now the words grace and supplication are from the same root word. Grace. To, to bestow grace. And what is Grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. That second word, supplication, is a beautiful, amazing word. It occurs 18 times in the Old Testament, mostly in the Psalms. And you know what it means? It means to ask God for His grace. Not for stuff. Not for situational changes. It means to ask God for His grace. See, it's not merely a request for a deliverance. It's a request for undeserved deliverance. It is a plea for God's amazing grace. There's a great example in Jeremiah 3. God says to Judah and Israel, He says, 
Surely, as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have treacherously dealt with me, O house of Israel. A voice is heard on the bare heights, the weeping and the supplications of the sons of Israel because they had perverted their way. They had forgotten Yahweh their God. Return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. And then the people say, Behold, we come to Thee, for You are the Lord our God. See, not only will God pour out His grace, His undeserved favor and kindness on Judah, He will cause them to seek His grace. He will cause them to depend on Him for His grace. To trust in Him for His grace. And you know what you call that? You call that saving faith. By God's miraculous work of grace, both the kingly line and the rank and file people of Jerusalem and Judah will mourn. But they will not just mourn over their sin as they had mourned countless times to no good outcome. They will mourn over their rejection of God's Messiah. The wording of verse 10 is so clearly messianic that the only way you can miss it is if you're trying to miss it. And when I say messianic, I mean it's pointing forward to Jesus Christ. God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on Me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over Him like the bitter weeping of a, over a firstborn son. Bob and Jeanette know what it's like to weep over the death of a firstborn son. And that's an amazingly powerful picture of mourning. But you know what? This is talking about the firstborn son of God. In John's account of the crucifixion, he directly references a carefully selected piece of this verse. Verse 10, Zechariah 12. John 19.37, right after he points out that a soldier pierced the side of Jesus and blood and water flowed out of the wound, John said again, another Scripture says they shall look on Him whom they have pierced. See, when Jesus was crucified, the leaders of Israel looked. They beheld. They saw. But they did not mourn. But the day is coming when they will. They will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over Him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. It's fairly astounding to note that the Jewish rabbinical writings, even up through the medieval period long after the first advent of Christ, considered Zechariah 12.10 to be messianic. And yet they rejected him when he was standing right in their midst. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day literally looked upon him whom they had pierced and they didn't recognize that this passage was talking about. But the day is coming when everyone in Israel would, will know that this passage is talking about Him. God says they will look upon Me whom they have pierced and they will mourn. And this mourning won't be some kind of formal, ceremonial, public mourning that Israel practiced so often and that meant so little when it came down to their behavior. Right? This is talking about an intensely personal grief. Not over self, over God's Messiah. This is talking about godly sorrow. It's talking about real repentance. It is talking about a change of the heart. 
passage says every family by itself will mourn. Not a public thing. This is an individual thing. It's a personal, a deeply, deeply personal thing. And then it says not just the men, not just the leaders of the families, but their wives by themselves. That's a poignant way to say that this deep sorrow is going to touch every single person in Israel. In their heart. They will mourn bitterly when they realize that the one they rejected, the one they pierced, was God's Messiah, their Redeemer. Verse 11 compares this mourning to the terrible grief that Israel experienced after the death of King Josiah, the beloved king, in the plain of Megiddo at the hands of Pharaoh Necho. But the person on whom this mourning focuses is God Himself. And God says, it's very interesting, He says they will look upon whom? Me! They will look upon Me whom they have pierced. And then it switches to Him. I find that interesting in itself because He's sending His Messiah. The branch, the one that this book's talked about before. Verses 12-14 to explicitly single out four families in Israel. The family of the house of David, the family of the house of Nathan, the family of the house of Levi, and the family of the Shimeites. Eugene Merrill in his commentary points out that the Shimeites were apparently the prominent clan of the Levites after Judah's return from the exile to Babylon. The point of mentioning the Shimeites is they were the current expression of the Levites in Jerusalem. So, you look at the three top-level families in this description. The house of David, the house of Nathan, the house of Levi. What do you get? Now, some say the Nathan that's being spoken of is the son of David. One of his sons was named Nathan. I don't think so. I think it was the guy whose name David gave to his son. And that guy was the prophet Nathan. And so I believe what you get is the household of the king, the household of the priest, and the household of the prophet. The three categories of leaders in Israel that God had indicted over and over for being crummy shepherds. Foolish shepherds. And God's redeeming them here. And they're mourning along with all the people. All the shepherds, all the flock, will finally be truly humbled before God in genuine repentance and faith. In Romans 11, the Apostle Paul says that a day is coming when God is going to use the salvation of the Gentiles. That's us if you're a Gentile believer and there's some Jews in our midst. He's going to use the salvation of the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy and that Israel, whose eyes and ears had so long been closed to God, will finally, truly turn to Him and be saved. I'm just going to read this passage. This is amazing stuff. Romans 11:25 through 32. Listen for a minute. God says, I do not want you, Gentile brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus, all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is My covenant with them when I take away their sins. And then He says, from the standpoint of the Gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for your sake, Gentiles. 
But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers because for the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. What does irrevocable mean? It means you can't undo it. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy. God has shut up all in disobedience that He might show mercy to all. Remember back in Zechariah 3 when God said He's going to bring His servant, the one He called the branch? He said, when right after He said He will bring in His servant, He said that He will remove the iniquity of His land in a single day. That passage in Zechariah 3 is talking about this event. When God removes the iniquity of His land. And the picture of a victory in a single day is a picture of a mighty victory. I know there are godly and diligent students and teachers of the Word of God who believe that the church has replaced Israel as the covenant people of God. I respect those brothers and sisters. But I must say that in the realm of things that are not essential to the Gospel itself, there are few things I believe as strongly as this. God is not finished with the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, the entire completion and culmination of His plan of redemption for mankind hinges on what He's going to do with them. And I believe that very strongly. That brings us to one more critical point that comes into focus in the very last verse of this chapter. After mentioning specific families from the three categories of leaders or shepherds that God had placed over His people, God concludes the list of mourners, the people who will be mourning, by with this. He says, all the families that remain will mourn. It's important to understand the people who are going to be the objects of this miraculous work of deliverance from the inside out and even the people who are going to be the objects of that miraculous deliverance from the, from the military siege are the remnant of, evil, of the remnant of God's people that are left after He judges the rest. Chapter 11 talked about the flock doomed to slaughter. And the remaining two chapters of this book are going to talk a couple of times about the cataclysmic judgment that God is going to execute against Israel before He deals with the nations around Israel. This amazing promise of both a physical and spiritual deliverance does not apply to everyone. It doesn't even apply to everyone in Israel. It applies to a small remnant that God will refine and bring out to be His. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. From God's perspective, I believe very strongly that it is those whom He chooses whose hearts will be turned to godly grief over the suffering and death of Jesus Christ in their place and they will trust in Him. But from our perspective, from man's perspective, God simply calls us to come. He calls us to humble ourselves before Him to utterly abandon any thought of righteousness that comes from us. And He calls us to cling to our Savior 
a Redeemer who died when we should have died. He died in our place. And He covers us with His righteousness so that He could make us His treasured possession. We have a far greater enemy than men or even entire nations of men who would seek to to do us harm. A far greater enemy. There's a far greater threat to every man and woman and child than the most threatening of situations that you will ever experience. And that threat is an unrepentant heart. There is a far greater deliverance than getting out of any painful or fearful or life-threatening situation that you will ever face on this earth. And that far greater deliverance is the one and only deliverance that will ever change your heart. It is the work of God's amazing grace that brings you to your knees before our holy God. It is the outpouring of God's grace that makes you call out for grace and trust in grace. Believe the promise of God that He sent His Son, His only Son, His firstborn, to pay for your sin. That's the outpouring of God's grace that finally causes you to look upon Him. By the way, to look upon Him whom you and I have pierced. You and I were just as active in driving those nails into Christ's hands as those Roman soldiers. It's the outpouring of God's grace that causes you to finally trust not in anything that you can do for God, but to trust only in what He has done for you in Jesus Christ when He paid the terrible debt of your sin. And you know what? That's not just the starting point to the Christian life. That's what the whole Christian life is about. It's about depending on and trusting in what God has done and on His greatness and on His power because His redemption that brings us into life is the same redemptive power that that gives us life day by day. It's the same redemptive power that makes us useful to Him day by day while we're here on this earth. It's the same redemptive power. It's the same resurrection life that makes us overcomers during the time that we're here on this earth. Instead of just copers. You know what a coper is? It's someone who gets by from one crisis to the next. Do you think that's why God saved you? To cope? No. He saved you to overcome. He saved you to be His agent. He saved you to be His instrument on this earth to draw other men into His kingdom so that they will know this deliverance even as you do. Dear Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today or in the hearing of my voice at, at any point that, that does not know that they have this redemption, this life that You describe here, Lord, I pray that they would not rest until they fall before You in humility and they say to You that they cannot make themselves acceptable to a holy God. That it is all and only what You have done in the person of Jesus Christ that makes us able to stand before You spotless and blameless, redeemed, turned into sons, into fellow heirs with Jesus Christ forever. These things are marvelous. They're incredible for us. But You've stated them very clearly. Father, may we 
May we cling to Your grace. May we cry out always for Your grace. Not just call for it, but trust in it. And may we, Lord, who belong to You by faith in Jesus Christ, always call out to You for the grace of life that we may be a treasured possession zealous for good deeds while we remain here. Make our lives adorn the doctrine of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in His precious name. Amen.